Welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review. We're here today with Dr. Gregory Sawicki, Associate Professor of Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and Director of the Cystic Fibrosis Center at Boston Children's Hospital. And we're here to talk about some of the real-world clinical aspects of CFTR modulators. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is jointly presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences, Vertex Pharmaceuticals, AbbVie, and USA. Learning objectives for this audio program include summarize the longer-term outcomes of Ivacaftor therapy and describe the real-world findings about initiating Lumicaftor Ivacaftor therapy. Dr. Sawicki has disclosed that he has served as a principal investigator for Vertex Pharmaceuticals, Novartis AG, and Proteostasis Incorporated, and has served or serves on advisory boards for Gilead Sciences and Vertex Pharmaceuticals. He has also indicated that there will be no references to the unlabeled or unapproved uses of any drugs or products in today's discussion. Dr. Sawicki, thank you for joining us today. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. In your newsletter issue, Doctor, you reviewed the recent publications describing investigations into the real-world use of CFTR modulators and how these findings are changing the paradigm for treating CF. What I'd like us to do today is discuss how some of that information can be applied to clinical practice. So start us out, if you would, please, Dr. Sawicki, with a patient scenario. Our first patient scenario that we'll discuss today is that of a 22-year-old male with cystic fibrosis who's presenting for a routine visit to a CF center. This happens to be his first visit in a new adult CF center, as he's just moved to a new city to take a new job. You review his clinical records and see that his genotype is Delta F508 and G551D. His baseline FEV1 over the past several years has been 85% predicted, and his recent BMI was 22. He does have a history of several hospitalizations for pulmonary exacerbations, particularly when he was an early adolescent but he has not been hospitalized now for over five years. He does have a history of chronic pseudomonas aeruginosa infection. When he comes to the clinic visit, he brings the following list of medications that were prescribed at his prior CF care center. Pancreatic enzymes, inhaled tobramycin twice daily every other month, inhaled Dornase alpha once daily, hypertonic saline once daily, and Ivacaftor twice daily. He states that he is feeling well, and discloses that there are many days when he does not complete any of his nebulized therapies. He regularly does take his enzymes with meals, since when he does not, he develops abdominal discomfort and other symptoms. He also reports erratic adherence to his Ivacaftor, stating that particularly with his busy schedule at school and now with his new job, he sometimes only takes one dose a day. When he was younger and he was living with his parents, he tells you that he was organized because his parents organized things for him and they checked in on him every day in terms of his daily medications. But he feels that now that he's living alone, this has been much more of a challenge. But he does think that he feels quite well, even with this erratic adherence. And he asks which medications that he still should be taking. Particularly wants to know whether any of these medications could be stopped. When you talk to him about Ivacaftor, he also notes that his co-payment for Ivacaftor has increased with a new health insurance plan, and he's having some trouble thinking about paying for the co-payments on a regular basis. So he wonders whether this medication is necessary at all. You've painted a pretty complete picture here, doctor. A patient in transition to self-sufficiency whose adherence to a relatively standard burden of treatment has begun to suffer. But he says he's feeling good. So the first question I would have would be, how much of that feeling good might be attributed to the Ivacaftor? 
This particular patient happens to have the genotype heterozygous for G551D, which is a class 3 gating mutation, which was the first mutation that was evaluated in terms of clinical trials for Ivacaftor now almost 10 years ago. And in these clinical trials, it was found that Ivacaftor therapy was quite beneficial in terms of improving multiple health outcomes in patients with this particular genotype. There was improvement in lung function, in weight, in symptoms. There was also a reduction in pulmonary exacerbations. And all of this was seen within a period of about a year during the actual trial. But since that time, we've had some further data looking at longer-term benefits of ivacaftor therapy, particularly with patients that have the same genotype as our case. And these studies have all pretty much said the same thing, that ivacaftor therapy on a longer-term basis has sustained benefits and may, in fact, alter the trajectory of CF lung disease. How are these longer-term studies conducted? These longer-term studies have been a combination of studies evaluating both prospective cohorts of patients that started on Ivacaftor after it was approved in the United States, and also studies looking at data sources such as administrative data, health plan data, and registry data, which looks at outcomes on a much broader level than may be seen in the clinical trial. The benefits of these kinds of studies is that as opposed to controlled trials where only a few key outcomes are evaluated, these data sources allow you to look at both pulmonary and non-pulmonary outcomes in terms of treatment effect. The pulmonary longer-term outcomes of Ivacaftor, what is the study evidence shown? In terms of the pulmonary outcomes, what we're seeing in these studies is that even over time and even upwards of five years, patients are reporting fewer exacerbations, there are fewer hospitalizations, and there are fewer symptoms. In addition, there have been analyses looking at the rate of lung function decline over time and have seen that there's been a lower rate of lung function decline or a slowing of the lung function decline in patients that are on Ivacaftor over a three to four year period. Importantly, we've also seen lower rates of pseudomonas infection in patients with Ivacaftor therapy, suggesting that there's some benefit to reduction of certain types of infections in cystic fibrosis airways that are of quite concern to clinicians. And the non-pulmonary longer-term benefits? There are non-pulmonary outcomes that have been seen in some of these studies that have shown significant benefit with long-term Ivacaftor therapy. This has included improved weight, And the mechanisms for this are really still unclear. In the newsletter this month, we did review one study that looked at fat absorption and other GI outcomes in relation to starting Ivacaftor therapy. And it was clear that Ivacaftor therapy led to better fat absorption and, in fact, perhaps changed the resting metabolic rate as well and resting energy expenditure. Other outcomes that have been evaluated include pancreatic function. One of these is a marker of pancreatic insufficiency, like fecal elastase. And in studies of younger kids who started Ivacaftor therapy, there's been some suggestion that pancreatic function, particularly the exocrine function, may be slightly improving. Longer-term studies in adults have not yet been done with this outcome, but it certainly is compelling data in younger populations. In terms of endocrine pancreatic function, we know that cystic fibrosis-related diabetes is a common comorbidity, particularly for adults. And we do see some studies now showing some potential that islet cell function, the cells that produce insulin in the pancreas, may be improved upon the initiation of Ivacaftor. And one of these studies was reviewed in the recent newsletter as well. And finally, the outcome that clinicians and patients and families care most about 
namely mortality, is something that is not possible to study in short-term clinical trials. However, some of these longer-term observational studies using registries have now seen lower rates of mortality in registry data. This data was seen both in the United States and in the United Kingdom, two vastly different health systems, suggesting that this effect of ivacaster therapy to reduce overall mortality in CF is quite robust. So the main message to get across to a patient like the one you described, the kind of patient who's feeling good and wondering whether continuing his ivacaster is necessary, that message would be what? All of these studies that have been seen both in the clinical trials initially when Ivacaster was first approved to longer-term observational outcome studies that have now been more present in the literature suggest that Ivacaster therapy has significant longer-term benefits. So as a clinician, I think it's important to discuss these benefits with patients, particularly if they're having questions about maintenance of therapy, and particularly patients who do have mutations that are so responsive to Ivacaster therapy. Assessing a patient's response to Ivacaftor therapy, what should clinicians look at? Bob, that's a great question because we do have some tools at our disposal to help us think about whether a patient is responding to Ivacaftor therapy. In our particular case that we've started discussing, the history does point to some response. The young man has fewer hospitalizations, he's reporting fewer symptoms. And as far as we can tell, his lung function has remained stable. And these are really the common things that clinicians have on a daily basis to assess response. How a patient feels, what their respiratory symptoms are, what their lung function, particularly what their FEV1 is. And as we talked about earlier, looking at their rate of lung function decline over time and the frequency of exacerbations and or need for hospitalizations. Those are the usual clinical parameters that all pulmonologists are very familiar with. As I mentioned earlier, there's improvement in nutritional outcomes as well. And so a simple thing you can follow is weight or BMI. And particularly in younger patients, you can follow weight gain and growth over time as you would normally. What about the sweat chloride? Can that be an appropriate biomarker? Prior to the advent of CFTR modulator therapy, we didn't really think of sweat chloride as a biomarker or a treatment response marker. We thought of it as a diagnostic test for cystic fibrosis. And rarely would clinicians repeat sweat tests after a diagnosis was made, either in childhood or as an adult. However, in the clinical trials and in subsequent observational studies of Ivacaftor, we've seen that sweat chloride does drop dramatically with initiation of therapy. And so that suggests that sweat chloride can be used as a marker of responsiveness and a marker of responsiveness to a particular therapy. If a patient did not have a sweat chloride change, I'd have to think either he's not responding to the therapy or perhaps he's not taking it regularly. And that would open up a discussion with the patient around both whether they're using their medications appropriately, but also potentially whether there are other things that can be done to help augment the response to their therapy. It's not yet routinely done and it's not yet routinely recommended in terms of monitoring, but it's something that I think is relatively accessible to clinicians at CF programs to be able to look at sweat chlorides over time. And in fact, the CF Foundation has just launched a study nationally to look at the impact of ivacaftor therapy and other CFTR modulator therapy on sweat chlorides. And this will give us the data that will be important to know what the range of response can be, because everybody might be slightly different, and it will be important to know on a broader population level what sort of is expected in terms of a change in sweat chloride upon initiation of the therapy. I want to follow up on the first question I asked you, doctor. 
The patient says he feels good and he wants to lower his treatment burden. So, not his Ivacaftor, but his other treatments, the PERT, the Toby, Dornase Alpha, Hypertonic Saline. How would you respond when he says he wants to continue some of those? So, the question of discontinuing other therapies comes up a lot. Clinicians are often faced with patients and families asking whether other therapies can be stopped, particularly if they're doing well or their health is stable, or in fact, if their health has improved upon starting Ivacaftor. We have to remember that all the clinical trials were done with patients taking their existing baseline therapies. And so the data that we see in terms of outcomes reflects a baseline of existing therapies. And so we don't actually have data to say, if you pull away one of the therapies or two of the therapies, does the effect or the responsiveness to Ivacaftor change? That said, patients are often talking with their actions and are doing whatever they want anyway. And so it's important to have an open conversation with an individual to say, have you discontinued therapies? And if you have discontinued a particular therapy, think about a trial period or a way to assess responsiveness to that and say, at what point do you drop a medication from in terms of recommendations? And so I think this is where clinical judgment and the art of medicine comes in more than the science. That said, studies are really needed to think about withdrawal of therapies and think about discontinuation of therapies, particularly if modulator therapy is extended to a larger amount of patients in the United States or worldwide. And this is something that the CF Foundation and others in the CF research community are thinking about, how to simplify regimens in a safe and effective way to help guide clinicians with this important question. One last question about this patient, doctor. We learned from the case that his adherence to his Ivacaftor, actually his adherence to all his therapies, has been deteriorating. How would you recommend clinicians address adherence challenges? So, Bob, I think this is a really important question as well, and it's one that I think is more alarming from the case. If a young man has been on Ivacaftor therapy and has been doing well, I think it's important for clinicians to promote and educate a patient like this about the importance of this therapy because this is a lifelong therapy. And so the first is to have a communication, as we've talked about, in terms of thinking about outcomes and educating patients and families about outcomes. But more importantly, thinking about the rationale for taking these therapies. That even on a short-term basis, there may not be a difference. We're looking at long-term outcomes and we're caring about long-term improvement and survival. And after that, if there are problems with adherence, we need to think about what the barriers are. We need to think that one size doesn't fit all. Not every patient is going to be non-adherent to a therapy for the same reasons. And we need to have a conversation assessing what an individual barrier is for that particular individual. Is it organization? Is it time? Is it access to medications or challenges with co-payments? Is it simply forgetting and not having a habit? And so all these things can be a target for intervention, but the baseline for a clinician and a clinical team needs to be think about the individual barrier first and then think about an intervention. Interventions for adherence are really being studied more in cystic fibrosis, and these focus on habits, these focus on education, these focus on reminders, these focus on coaching strategies, these focus on addressing mental health. But all of these interventions in and of themselves may not work for individuals. So it all comes back to that personalized approach to therapy and discussing with an individual patient what their challenges are in terms of taking a particular medication such as Ivacaftor. Thank you for that case and discussion, doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Gregory Sawicki from Harvard Medical School in just a moment. You've been listening to a Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine e-cystic fibrosis review podcast. 
If you're unfamiliar with our program, we're a combination newsletter and podcast continuing educational series. We're available online without cost or prerequisite. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review newsletters are published every other month. Each issue focuses on a specific area of importance in the care of patients with cystic fibrosis and is authored by an expert clinician who reviews the current literature and provides commentary. In the month following each newsletter, a case-based podcast discussion, like the one you've been listening to, focuses that expert perspective on translating the new information into clinical practice. Continuing education credit for E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is jointly provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. For more information about E-Cystic Fibrosis Review, please go to our website, ecysticfibrosisreview.org. And if you're interested in additional CF programs, please visit dkbmed.com forward slash CF. And one more thing, if you've enjoyed this podcast and found the information useful, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so that others can find it as well. Thank you. Welcome back to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. We've been speaking with Dr. Gregory Sawicki, Director of the Cystic Fibrosis Center at Boston Children's Hospital and an Associate Professor of Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School about the real-world clinical aspect of CFTR modulators. So let's continue in that vein, if you would please, doctor, with another patient scenario. So the second case is that of a pediatric patient, and it's a seven-year-old girl with cystic fibrosis whose genotype is Delta F508 homozygous. She comes to her CF center with her mother for a routine visit. Lumicaster Ivacaster therapy is now approved for her daughter, but her mother has questions about starting this medication. She feels that her daughter has been in good health and she has concerns about starting a new medication. Her daughter's baseline lung function is 95% predicted. Her BMI is 40th percentile, and she has never been hospitalized. She did grow pseudomonas in a throat culture at age five and did complete eradication therapy. And her recent throat cultures have grown Staphylococcus aureus only. Her current daily treatment regimen is Dornase Alpha, once daily, bronchodilators as needed, pancreatic enzymes with meals and snacks, and vitamins. Her mother is particularly concerned about side effects that she's read about online of Lumicaftor Ivacaftor therapy. But she's also concerned about starting a new chronic medication that has only been available for a short period of time. The mother's concern is very understandable. Her seven-year-old seems healthy on a pretty easy regimen. Why does she need Lumicaftor Ivacaftor? And why does she need to start it now? How would you answer the mother, doctor? Bob, those are excellent questions and are important questions to address with this patient's mother. As is noted in the case, Lumicaftor Ivacaftor therapy has only been available for patients for a few years' time, and the pediatric indication has only been around for even a shorter period of time. So the mom is right that there is less long-term data in terms of initiation and outcomes of this therapy in particularly younger kids. However, the rationale for CFTR modulator therapy really is to improve CFTR function as early as possible. And that means focusing on early initiation. And so if you can improve CFTR function, even as early as newborn periods, we think that that may offset or delay the development of some complications of cystic fibrosis later on. We don't yet have the long-term data to show that, but the short-term data that was seen in clinical trials did show a modest improvement in lung function, as well as improvements in weight and reductions in pulmonary exacerbations. And this early data does suggest that there may be some change in lung function decline as well. 
Obviously, when starting with a younger patient who is at baseline healthy, they may not have yet experienced exacerbations or challenges in terms of weight or challenges in terms of lung function decline. And so measuring response might be more challenging. But if you think about the lens of long-term therapy and improving outcomes over a period of decades, the rationale for starting such therapy while a patient is healthier certainly makes sense and is one that can be discussed with families, particularly of younger kids who may be eligible for this therapy. And the mother's concern about the lumicaftor ivacaftor side effects. So there are some side effects that should be evaluated for when starting lumicaftor and ivacaftor therapy. In clinical trials, the most prominent side effect that was noticed was chest tightness or increased respiratory symptoms, particularly in patients who were sicker or had lower baseline lung function. This was also observed in observational studies and single-center studies and case reports, particularly focusing on adult patients and patients with lower lung function. Interestingly, in the pediatric trials, these symptoms of chest tightness leading to discontinuation of therapy were much less prevalent. For pediatric patients, however, the biggest side effect to monitor for is liver function, and this has to be taken into account by doing blood monitoring both before starting therapy and then every three to six months after initiating therapy for at least the first year, and then subsequently at least annually thereafter. Drug-drug interactions are also important to monitor in terms of lumicaftor ivacaftor therapy, and there is a list that is available of drugs that may interact with lumicaftor and ivacaftor that should be evaluated when starting a patient on this therapy. And finally, baseline eye exams are recommended for all children starting lumicaftor ivacaftor therapy based on some preclinical data that was seen in early-stage development of this drug. In my recent newsletter, there is a paper that was reviewed that suggested that there may have been a change in mental health outcomes in some teenagers that were started on lumicaftor ivacaftor therapy. This is only a case series, but it did identify patients who did develop worse depression and anxiety after starting this therapy. We don't know for sure whether it was related directly to the starting of this medication, but fundamentally, it's important for any patient starting this new medication to be closely monitored by their CF care clinician for all sorts of symptoms and potential side effects. Final question on this patient, doctor, and it goes to the relative newness of lumicaftor ivacaftor. The mothers express concern about potential long-term effects. How would you address that concern? So, Bob, the mother's question about long-term outcomes and long-term data is really important. And unfortunately, because the drug is relatively new and available, we don't have clinical data or observational data to fully answer her questions. That said, there are many studies that are ongoing right now that are looking at long-term health outcomes in terms of lung function, symptoms, nutritional outcomes, and other biomarkers, similar to the data that's been seen in ivacaftor therapy. And I do think that the early signal suggests that there is medium-term to longer-term benefit in initiating lumicaftor-ivacaftor therapy as well. Clearly, time will tell whether this is true and whether the levels of outcomes are as robust as is seen in ivacaftor. But we also know that there are other therapies that are being currently developed that may have better outcomes both in the short-term and long-term. So the way that I discuss this with my families is that we have a drug right now that is available that can improve CFTR function, at least in the short term. And we may want to consider using this until the further development of perhaps better drugs in the future. Well, thank you, Dr. Sawicki, for sharing your expertise and insight in today's cases. Let's wrap things up now by reviewing today's key takeaways as they relate to our learning objectives. So to begin... 
the longer-term outcomes of Ivacaftor therapy. What's most important for clinicians to know? So Ivacaftor therapy is the first and most widely studied CFTR modulator available for a certain group of patients. And it's important to realize that all of the short and medium-term outcome studies that have been done thus far suggest improvements in pulmonary outcomes, such as lung function and exacerbation rates, as well as non-pulmonary outcomes, including nutritional status and perhaps pancreatic function. It's important to realize that long-term outcomes of ivacaftor therapy seem to suggest a change in disease trajectory over time and should be recommended for as many patients as possible with cystic fibrosis and appropriate mutations. And our other learning objective, the real-world findings about initiating lumacaftor-ivacaftor therapy. Again, what's most important for clinicians to be aware of? In terms of initiation of lumacaftor-ivacaftor therapy, Real-world data has suggested that there have been some side effects that may not have been present during clinical trials. Thus, it's important for clinicians to have close monitoring plans in place with their patients when starting this therapy, particularly patients who may be older or have more pronounced lung disease. Dr. Gregory Suwicki from Harvard Medical School and the CF Center at Boston Children's Hospital, thank you for participating in this eCystic Fibrosis Review podcast. Thank you, Bob. It's been a real pleasure. For E-Cystic Fibrosis Review, I'm Bob Busker. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org forward slash test. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the E-Cystic Fibrosis Review newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME CE credit, emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with cystic fibrosis. This activity has been developed for the CF care team, including pulmonologists, pediatric pulmonologists, gastroenterologists, pediatricians, infectious disease specialists, respiratory therapists, dietitians, nutritionists, pharmacists, nurses and nurse practitioners, physical therapists, and others involved in the care of patients with cystic fibrosis. There are no fees or prerequisites for this activity. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the essential areas and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education through the joint sponsorship of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. The Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing is accredited as a provider of continuing nursing education by the American Nurses Credentialing Center's Commission on Accreditation. For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hour. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive eCystic Fibrosis Review via email, please go to our website, www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the names of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing implies review of educational format, design, and approach. 
Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combinations of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indication, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated, Vertex Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, AbbVie Incorporated, and Shiisi USA Incorporated. This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing.